1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scriptures say, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. It's the word of the Lord. Thank you, Ryan. It is very, very exciting for me to be here on this terrific day because if you just sort of look at an individual Christian experience, you're like, well, you know, I come here and I get fellowship and I get teaching and it's great for me. Uh, what's the big deal about this? You know, God didn't design us to follow Jesus alone. He designed us to follow Jesus together. And that's going to come out a number of different ways in the sermon today. And because God designed us to follow Him together in these things called churches, what you're embarking on now is really, really critical in terms of who will the leaders be uh, in this congregation and terrifically, terrifically exciting. So I'm glad to have a chance to share God's Word with you. Now, as we get into this idea of churches, I want to say two, different, two things by way of introduction, and they are these. Churches are God's idea, and churches are messy, okay? Both of those things are really, really true. Churches are God's idea, and churches are messy. Now, if you look at the book of Acts, if you look at the New Testament, you see, as I just alluded to, that God pulls us together in churches to follow Him. Now, why is that? Well, uh, churches are like an outpost of God's kingdom. It's like a foretaste of the, of the kingdom to come at the end of the age. We're getting the sense of, a little sense of what heaven is like because we have fellowship with one another. God wants to, to have visible demonstrations of what the kingdom is all about, and that happens in churches. But at the same time, king, uh, churches are messy, right? You look at the New Testament, you look at uh, the book of Acts, you look at the letters of the apostles in the New Testament, we call epistles, and, and what is written to those churches. And churches are a mess. And that churches are a mess because they're made up of sinners. And that means, you know, you get church splits and people leave, church is mad, and this kind of thing. Heard a joke many years ago of a, of a guy that was, was marooned on an island all by himself. He was the only person on this little island. He was there for years and years and years. And years later, somebody finds him on the island. They come to pick him up and they see three buildings on the island. They said, what are those three buildings? And he says, well, that one is my house. And the second one is the church I go to. And they said, well, what's the third one? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> you know, it just, there's a church of one person and there was a church split. I mean, you know, that's how bad churches are, right? Churches are a mess. But because we are a mess, that is why all praise goes to God. I was with a group of church leaders this last week. And we were talking about just how messy church leadership is. And I said to them very honestly, one of the things that convinces me of the truth of the gospel of Christianity is this. It has survived all the wackiness of church leaders for 2,000 years. 
The gospel has to be true if it's overcome all the human frailties that go along with it. But that being said, God wants us to, to uh, tap down the human frailties as much as we can. When I, through the years, as I've observed, when there are church problems, almost always there's a church problem because there's a problem in church leadership. And that is why what we're going to talk about today in the message and what you've been looking at in this whole book of 1 Timothy is so critical. So often the problems of the church have to do with the problems of the leadership of the church. And if the problems don't start at the leadership, it's the responsibility of the leadership to try to deal with those things. And so the passage today is going to tell us a little bit about what can the congregation expect of its elders, both as pastors that we call teaching elders and as other elders, and then also, what can the pastors expect from the elders? What can the elders expect from the pastors? All those kinds of things. And what can the leaders of the church expect from the membership? Now, we can't cover all that in this passage. And uh, this passage isn't intended to cover all those things. But some of the things that are really critical are in this passage. And it will be really important for us to understand of what can be expected as you start uh, down the road. So, First uh, Timothy is a terrific, terrific book as you've been looking at. Rooted in the gospel, a maturing church, how the church is to be set into order. <clears throat> and uh, in this book, you've already looked at one of the most critical passages in chapter 3. That, I think, as you embark upon the endeavor of having your own elders elected, that is the most critical thing. What is to be the character? What is to be the heart? What is to be the style of life of those who are to be your elders. So I won't re repeat that. But it's really, really uh, critical uh, that this passage is understood in light of that passage. Well, what's the essence of what we're going to say today of this passage that Ryan has already read to you? And the, the essence is this, that elders represent Christ to the church. Therefore, they are to be honored and they are to be honorable. Let me say it again. The role of elders is to represent Christ to the church. They do it with frailty. They do it with fallenness. They do it so imperfectly. But that is really their role, is to represent Christ to the church. And therefore, even despite these being just fallen human beings, they are to be honored because of their office, but they are also to live lives that are honorable. Now, we're going to hit three main points today. Let me give you a preview. Don't put the first one up on the screen yet. I'm going to give you a preview of where we're going and then we'll go there, okay? I like it uh, how somebody put it once that a preacher should tell people what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what, tell them what you told them, okay? So I'm going to tell you what I'm about to tell you. And there are three things here. We're going to look at the required financial honor, especially to what we call teaching elders. Then there's the required spiritual honor to all elders. And then there's the required spirituality and honorability of all elders. And hopefully in each of these, we'll see what the passage says and how it applies to this church today, okay? So let's dive into it. First of all, the required financial honor, especially to what we call teaching elders or pastors. Excuse <coughs> me. And here's the passage again. Look at verses 17 and 18 with me, okay? It says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Now what does this mean? Now this is the passage from which our denomination gets the distinction between what we call 
teaching elders and ruling elders. You say, well, Bob, define what you mean by that. Well, teaching elders are usually what we think of as preachers and pastors. Ryan is a teaching elder. Typically, guys, they have a seminary education. They are trained in taking God's Word and preaching it and teaching it. Ruling elders would be those who are elected from the congregation that normally have a day job doing something else. They come and they help to give leadership to this church. And so that's where we get this distinction, ruling elders, teaching elders. Now, five quick truths to try to define this so you don't misunderstand it. First of all is this, all elders are to rule and lead. Now, just because a teaching elder is called a teaching elder doesn't mean the only thing he does is teach. In fact, the passage says here beginning, those who direct the affairs of the, of the church well. So if a teaching elder is not a seminary professor, or a college professor, if a teaching elder is serving in a church, and especially if he's the lead pastor of that church, he needs to have the gift of leadership. So that's the first observation I would say. Teaching elders lead. The other part of this is also that together they rule. Together they rule. That's a real big thing in our form of government. In other words, we don't believe in putting a lot of spiritual authority in one person. That's just not the way we roll as Presbyterians. There will be a group of elders that lead this church. Up to this point, as Ryan has said, there have been a group of elders at Perimeter Church, your mother church, who have been the leaders of this church. They've delegated a lot of things to me as I've supervised Ryan. But the buck stops with a group of people, not just with one person. And as the church carries on, yes, those elders need to be individually good leaders, but their authority rests when they come together as a group and make decisions as a group. And that's a safeguard to everybody. A third observation is this. Though ruling elders are called to rule, they need to be able to teach. In chapter 3, verse 3 of this book, the Apostle Paul said a ruling elder needs to be able to teach. Now, he may not have the gifts and abilities to stand up in front of all of you and keep your attention for 30 minutes or whatever it is. And you're thinking, well, you know, a lot of you preachers can't keep my attention for 30 minutes either. You know, uh, they may not be able to teach large groups, but a ruling elder has to at least be able to teach a few people, one to one or a small group. If they can't describe God's Word, and teach accurately God's Word one-to-one in a small group, they shouldn't be a ruling elder. In my opinion, the key part of that is simply this. You don't know if somebody really knows something until they can teach it and say it. And the real key thing for ruling elder is that their way of thinking and leading is bathed in the Scriptures and in God's Word and in right theology. Remember, many years ago in a church that I was pastoring, a particular person was nominated to be a ruling elder of our church, a very successful businessman, a terrific leader, uh, a guy that could you know, handle his own in front of a group of people, tell stories, you know, get the crowd fired up. Great organizational leader for us. When we were meeting in a school like this, he was the guy that organized all the setup and takedown. Wonderful. But I just sort of couldn't imagine him taking the Word of God and teaching people with it. And when I'd seen him in front of groups with some kind of spiritual leadership, I just thought, that was pretty weak. But the other people of our church, the other elders said, no, he's been nominated. I think he'll do a good job. He became an elder. And you know what? I've regretted that for many years because the way he thought wasn't bathed sufficiently in the Scriptures. So even though a ruling elder, his main job is leading, he needs to know the Scriptures and be able to teach them and describe them because you want him to think scripturally every time he makes a decision. 
And he wants to, if you want him to shepherd God's people, he needs to do it with the scriptures. A fourth observation is this ruling elders may be paid. And we're going to talk about it in a minute, but this, this idea of double honor means who gets paid to work for the church, so to speak, to lead the church, which elders are paid. And as we're going to say in a moment, the focus here is especially on teaching elders, but it is permitted for ruling elders to be employed part-time or full-time in the leadership of the church. Perimeter Church, which is the mother church of yours, has a good number of ruling elders that are paid. And it's one of the reasons the church is well-led. The first, very first, when I planted in-town community church down near Emory University years ago, the very first guy that came to work with me was a guy who was a ruling elder, not a teaching elder, and he was exactly what we needed in terms of executive leadership. So that is permitted. But the primary group that Paul has in mind here are what we call teaching elders. He says those whose job especially is preaching and teaching, they're the ones that need to be given the privilege of focusing full-time on the church. Now, why is that the case? Why is it that teachers and preachers are to be the primary leaders of the church? And here's the reason. It is the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, that leads the people of God to honor and trust and worship the Son of God. Let me say that again. It is the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, that leads the people of God to trust and worship the Son of God. This is not just a human organization. Therefore, it is led by the Word of God, and therefore the primary leaders are those who are empowered and trained and equipped and called to preach and teach that Word. And so that is critically, critically important. Now, how does that apply to your church? Well, let me just say, you are blessed. The reason you're blessed is that Ryan Johnson is gifted in leadership and Ryan Johnson is gifted in preaching and teaching and he does both of those things with the heart of a pastor. We often describe a pastor's role as preaching and leading and shepherding. Nobody's great at all three, but I tell you what, God has given you a pastor that is as strong in all three as I can ever imagine. Now, I work with a lot of pastors. He is gifted to preach and teach and he works hard at it. He is gifted as a leader, much better organized than most organizing pastors. And he has a heart to love God's people. So that's your blessing. But what's the truth of that? The truth is he needs other elders. Up to this point, it's been these elders at Perimeter in my work with him that have joined together so that there's somebody in charge here more than Ryan. Well, as you go out from under the mother church to be on your own, there needs to be more people than just Ryan. There are a group of those who are leading the church together. And that's why it is so critical to take this step of having your ruling elders. Now, a key part of the verse I've just read is this. He says, those who do this are worthy of double honor. Now, what does that mean? Well, the word double honor is connected to the work honorarium. And what he is basically saying here is the same thing is said in 1 Corinthians 9, 14. There Paul says, those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that it's unscriptural for there to be a bivocational pastor. It doesn't mean that a missionary can't have some other way of income so that he can get onto the mission field. But normally, the Bible says, those who preach the gospel make their living by the gospel. This word uh, 
double honor also carries the idea of ample and generous. Ample and generous. So there be sure there should be an ample financial support to the pastor. There should be a generous financial support to the pastor. Now, Paul uses an imagery from the Old Testament here. It's the imagery of an oxen who is treading uh, grain, sort of one of these things, the oxen goes around and around and around, and as grain is fed into it, that grain is crushed and processed. And what the Old Testament law required was that if an oxen is doing that, that the oxen not be muzzled. Well, why? So that as he is treading that, he can eat and replenish his strength from the labor that he is uh, uh, in, involved with. Now, John Calvin, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, in his commentary on this passage says, imagine if you were to see an oxen treading grain and it is skinny and unhealthy. The ribs are showing. The shoulder blades in the front and the back are showing. And this, this oxen is muzzled. It is starving to death. And there is food this far from its mouth. Wouldn't you think what a cruel, cruel farmer it is that would let this oxen starve to death when the food is right there in front of them. Well, and Calvin goes on to say the application is this, but how often is it true that pastors of churches are financially starving to death? They are impoverished because of their call to be a preacher. He says, let that never be the case. And Calvin goes on to say, in fact, that it is so often the case that there are good, gifted people who will not pursue ministry because they're afraid of not being able to supply for their families. Well, that should never be the case. Remember years ago when I was a Baptist, hearing, hearing the joke of that the Baptist church had a new pastor come to their church, and on the first Sunday that he was there, they were celebrating his presence, and one of the deacons stood up and prayed and said, oh Lord, we thank you for this pastor of ours, and Lord, if you will keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Well, you know, that's not the right attitude, is it? You know, if you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Uh, those things don't have to go together. God calls there to be an ample support. And sometimes people that are really gifted don't pursue ministry because they fear that. In one of the churches that I pastored uh, many years ago, there was one of our ruling elders who was especially great at discipleship. And we needed a staff member to lead our discipleship ministry. We thought, well, this guy's an elder. He, he's a shepherd of, of sorts. And he's great at discipleship. Let's ask him to be our full-time director of discipleship. And I went to his office one day and I met with him and I asked him to pray about that. And his response was, Bob, I just, I just can't even really pray about it for two reasons. One is, uh, working for the church would be way too stressful. And number two, I couldn't support my family on what I would be paid. And I remember responding to him, said, uh, his name wasn't Joe, but I'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, did you just hear what you said? You're the guy, you're one of the guys in charge of how much our pastors get paid. And you're telling me, one, you know that working for our church as a pastor is more stressful than what you do. And number two, but you're admitting you couldn't support your family. How can you let our pastors get paid what they're paid if you don't think you can live on what's being paid? Well, that should never be the case. Uh, in two different homes that we bought in the Atlanta area here, we've used a real estate agent who was a church secretary before she went into real estate. And she has helped many, many pastors and many people in vocational ministry find homes. 
And uh, she often does that by reducing her commission and as a ministry. But, but I remember one of those occasions where we were talking with her and she was helping us find a house. She said, I've noticed something in terms of how churches often pay their pastors. She says, I've often noticed that churches pay their pastors just a little bit under how much they should be paid to afford to live in the community where the church is and be financially healthy. Oh, that's amazing. She said, now, they often have to choose one of two things. Either they live in the community where the church is, but they have no savings, no margin, nothing looking toward the future. They're always just one financial crisis away from the savings account being gone. Or they can't live in the community where the church is. They have to drive in for a community that's more, quote, affordable. Well, may that never be the case. The idea here is this, that you as a congregation, one of the things you can do is hold, in the future, hold your elders accountable about this. Are we taking care of our pastors and our leaders? Are we taking care of them adequately? Those things will be their decisions once you have elders. But you as a congregation can hold them accountable. And for those that are elders, the idea is this. Place a missionary on the mission field. Tim Keller, who pastors Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, uh, said that when he came to Manhattan, he noticed that most of the pastors in New York City didn't live in the communities where they ministered. He said what happened was the ones that were in the communities that were more higher income their pastors commuted in from a, quote, more affordable neighborhood. And for those that were in the dangerous neighborhoods, they commuted in from safer neighborhoods. And he said, we found out it really doesn't work. Pastors are like missionaries. They have to live on the mission field where they are serving. And whether the sacrifice is moving down or moving up, there has to be some sacrifice to be an incarnational missionary. And so I would say the same thing is true. For the future of your church, what you want to be true of Ryan and any other pastors and other staff is this. You want them waking up every day thinking about these three things. How can I follow Jesus with all my heart? How can I love my family? And how can I lead my church to love and serve my city? You don't want them waking up every day thinking, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to make ends meet? How am I going to put food on the table? You don't want them waking up thinking that. You want them waking up thinking, how can I give myself entirely to this ministry? They have to be good financial managers of their own resources like everybody does. But may that come through the church deciding we will adequately pay. And so there's the first thing this, this, the Scripture says. There's a required financial honor, especially for those who are the teaching elders of the church. Uh, now you can see why Ryan had me come preach, right? So... That's the kind of thing an outside preacher gets to say and the preacher inside the church, that's awkward to say, but this is what God's Word says. So there it is. The second is this, the required spiritual honor to all elders. There's a required spiritual honor to all elders. Look again at verses 17 uh, through 20. The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. So there's an honor to all elders. Now, let me ask you this. 
In our culture today in America, are ministers and elders of churches, are they traditionally or normally rather, well thought of or not so well thought of? Well, I would say, my opinion is, once upon a time in the American culture, especially in the South, ministers were honored. That's more and more going away. And one of the reasons it's more and more going away, sadly enough, is the dishonorable actions of many, many ministers. And that is a very sad thing. When ministers act dishonorably, when they allow themselves to be the perpetrators of terrible, terrible sin of all kinds, they ruin the reputation of Christ and of the church. And that's one of the reasons ministers are not held in high regard. I think another reason, though, is simply the rejection of the gospel. Where the gospel is not honored, those who represent the gospel will not be honored. But within the church of Jesus Christ, for those who are really called to the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are leading honorably, there is to be an appropriate honor to the office. Now, actually, one of the reasons that's the case is this. Just as Jesus laid down His life for the church, every elder and every pastor to some degree is laying down His life for the church. One of the things that's very true and very... Uh, challenging about pastoral ministry is this it's always there all the time if you're if you're looking for a job where you clock in and you clock out and you can sort of like show up at eight and, and end at five or five thirty or six every day then being a pastor or being an elder of a church that doesn't work at all because the very time in which a pastor is called to connect with people will often be evenings and weekends but that's also when he needs to be with his family too so there is great sacrifice whatever however you cut it there's great sacrifice in being a minister of the gospel of jesus christ weekends are not like everybody else's weekends saturdays often are not like everybody else's saturdays and so as laying down your life for the church then the church is in a sense to say yes there's an honor of what god has called you to do you represent the leadership of god to us now, there are a couple of verses in Hebrews that say this even more forthrightly. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. You won't see it on the screen, but let me read it for you. In Hebrews 13, it says this, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. They're to follow Jesus and you follow them as they follow Jesus. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work would be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Great words of exhortation in terms of that honor. Now here in this passage, it says that the way a minister is honored is especially in these two ways. Follow my logic here. You're to protect them from false accusations, he says to Timothy, and you're to protect them from sin's destruction. Look again at verses uh, just 19 and 20. If you can call that back up on verses 19 and 20 perhaps. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it's brought by two or three witnesses, and, but those who do sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. So it says, first of all, one, one way of honoring a minister is to give them the benefit of the doubt, so to speak, the judgment of charity. And if there's an accusation, there have got to be two or three witnesses that is true. The way John Calvin put it was this, someone who faithfully teaches the Word of God will be attacked. 
And it's really true. If someone faithfully is teaching the Word of God, somewhere along the way, there will be spiritual opposition. There will be accusations that may not be true. It happens so many times. But what needs to happen is this, a process that of due process. A way of finding, well, are there more, is there more than one witness here? Is there, real, is there reality of sin underneath the accusation? In fact, one of the reasons that I was led from being a Baptist to being a Presbyterian is that our form of government has a way of dealing with the sins of ministers that is very, very important. You know, for a congregation that is simply autonomous and a congregation under, that has no authority over it, if a minister is accused of doing something uh, wrong or teaching something wrong, you know, the, the, that poor congregation just has to deal with it all on their own. One of the reasons that I love our form of government is this. If Ryan ever gets to the place where he is living heretically or teaching heretically, you're not all by yourself in dealing with that. There is a due process at the level of our presbytery in which those things would be figured out and he would be held responsible. Same thing for me, that I would be held responsible. And that is a very important thing. There's honor here, honor to protect from false accusations. The second thing here, though, is an honor to protect from sin's destruction. From sin's destruction. He says, if a minister is found guilty, if a minister is brought before the presbytery and charges that are found to be true and he's guilty of that, there's to be a public way of dealing with that. Why? So that people know we take seriously the spiritual leadership of our church. And that should lead other ministers, other elders, to walk very circumspectly and to walk faithfully with the Lord because things are not, things are not tolerated here. Now, what does that mean in terms of accountability? Let me give you some words of encouragement here. Uh, as the future of your church develops and Ryan continues to lead your church or you have other pastors that you call, every pastor needs three levels of accountability. First of all, every pastor needs some longtime friends that he sees regularly and they share everything in their hearts with each other and they pray for each other and nothing, nothing is hidden. I hope as you continue on as a church that the elders of this church will say to Ryan and to others, if you've got some buddies like that that know you inside and out, they know you not just because you're the pastor of our church, they, they know you a long time. They know you deeply. We will pay for you to get with those brothers several times a year and pray for each other and ask each other all the hard questions and you need a group like that. Number two, Every pastor needs the elders of his church to be supporting him spiritually. I think one of the wisest things that Randy Pope ever did in leading Perimeter Church was that every month when the elders meet, they start with a time in which they pray for him and they lift him up before the Lord and they ask him any hard question that they can think he needs to be asked about how he's living his life. And that kind of honest accountability, but not accountability like, man, we're going to keep you under our thumb, it's no, we're here to support you. We're here to pray for you. One of the greatest blessings I ever had in the lifetime that I was leading in town church was that my wife and I got to a point in which about seven or eight years of marriage, the church was growing, our family was growing. Things were so stressful. I was working way too long in my hours every week. And I went to the elders and I said, I need some help. And they put in place around me 
some limits and boundaries of my life and my ministry, and they reorganized our staff. And I am not exaggerating when I say they loved me and my wife well enough to keep our life out of the ditch. It would have gone into the ditch spiritually if they had not said, we will help you, we will support you, we will reorganize our staff to help you, and we will put some things in place like no more than three nights a week out for ministry. And if something else comes along and you need to say no, you can blame us that we put these limits on your time uh, for the sake of ministry. And I'm so, so thankful that they did. And then lastly, not only does every pastor need friends and his own elders within his church, but thirdly, every pastor needs to know that there is the presbytery that is there for his accountability. And I'm very thankful that every presbytery has a shepherding committee and, and others that say, you know, if any church faces a situation that's just too gnarly and difficult, we can come in and lovingly help if we're invited to come in and help. And that is critically, critically important. So, so financial honor, especially to those that are teaching elders, spiritual honor to all elders, and that leads us to the other side of the coin. And the other side of the coin is this. Thirdly, the required spirituality and honorability of all elders. What we're going to see in this passage is basically scandals are headed off at the pass by having the right approach towards someone becoming an elder or a minister. Look, we're going to look at verses 21 through 25, but we're going to look at it verse by verse. And we're going to see what it says here about the required honorability and spirituality of all elders and therefore, how they become elders. Look at verse 21. He says, I charge you in the sight of God and of Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and do nothing out of favoritism. Now notice, first of all, Paul to Timothy, who's getting things organized in the church there, he really sort of puts the screws to Timothy, doesn't he? He says, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exhort you and I'm going to remind you in the presence of God and in the presence of Jesus and in the presence of the elect angels to do what I'm telling you to do. Now that's pretty scary for a minister, right? I'm living my life in the presence of God. Jesus is here looking at me and the angels are here looking at me. And so he says, this is really, really important. And then he goes on to say this, do nothing out of favoritism. So here's the idea. When it comes to choosing who the ruling elders would be of this church, when it comes to choosing who assistant pastors would be of this church, let nothing be done. Don't play favorites is what he's saying. Don't play favorites. So in the choosing of who the elders would be in this church, he is saying in a sense to the leader of this church, to Ryan and others, this isn't about getting your golf buddies to be your elders. This isn't about getting your fishing buddies to be your elders. This isn't to bring on to the leadership of the church just guys you like to hang out with. Don't play favorites. This is also a way of saying, don't be impressed if somebody makes a lot of money. Don't play favorites. Don't be impressed if someone is an owner of a very successful company. Don't play favorites. Don't be impressed if someone comes into your church and they have an important governmental position in the community. Don't play favorites. This is a spiritual office. Those who have it must be examined for a spiritual basis. You're not to play a kind of favoritism. 
that this person is handsome or his wife is beautiful or he's got money or he's one of my close buddies. Don't play favorites when it comes to choosing the elders and pastors. Verse 22 says this, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And laying on of hands is a reference to how someone would be ordained. Don't be hasty in it. Don't, don't do it quickly or you would be sharing in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now what does this mean? This means that as your church goes forward, you need some things that will say, here's the critical minimum amount of time that this person needs to have been in our church for us to ordain them. You don't ordain somebody as an elder in your church. They've just shown up. You're impressed with them. You've known them a total of three months. Wow, we just got to hurry. Make this person the leader of the church so they don't go to another church somewhere. Terrible idea. Don't do that. Make sure you get to know them well. The nomination forms that you're going to see online or you're going to see out here today, one of the most important ways of making sure that the leaders of your church are spiritual people. It's not just putting a name on a piece of paper. Oh, I like this guy. I think he ought to be an elder. No, the form you're going to see will require you to think through the scriptural requirements of an elder. And that's what you are to do. Also, the reason there have to be nominations from three different families Hey, just don't pick a buddy. We've got to see that this person is really spiritually leading the church. That somebody who comes into the office of elder, that there are multiple families that are saying, this person is already, already eldering us. He's shepherding us. He's teaching us. He's leading us. I see that he has the right character. That's why it is so very, very important that that be done in that way. Verse 23 is sort of strange, but I'll connect the dots for you. Here's what Paul says in verse 23. He says to Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now this, of course, is a favorite verse for many Presbyterians and Episcopalians, right? Yeah. In fact, before the service, uh, Ryan said, be sure that people know that the pastor is to have a good, a good wine uh, allowance in his, in his income. Well, that's, that's not really the application, okay? So, I mean, honestly, even as I was preparing this message, I thought, how in the world does this verse fit? It's just something that's like it's, it's a non sequitur. Why in the world did he throw this in, drink a little wine? Well, he just said, keep yourself pure. And back in chapter 4, as you might remember, there's this false teaching going on. And the false teaching said, oh, if you're spiritual, you can't eat certain foods and you can't drink certain things. And they were prohibiting things that God permitted. I think what Paul is saying here is now, now, Timothy, I told you to keep yourself pure, but what I don't mean is be a legalist. What I don't mean is fall prey to this false teaching, okay? So uh, he says, uh, so that means as you look to who your elders would be, don't choose those who are legalists. Choose those that really understand the gospel. Now, of course, there was another issue here. For whatever reason, Timothy uh, had some stomach issues and, and Paul thought the wine is going to help and so therefore, this verse becomes the favorite verse of Baptists who would say it's for medicinal purposes that you can drink wine. Only medicinal purposes, but we won't even go down that road. Anyway, so the idea here is, uh, yeah, keep yourself pure. Now, what's this keep yourself pure deal all about? Well, keep yourself pure in this. If you lay hands on someone too soon and they bring sin into the church, you're partly responsible. That's what Paul is saying. If you rush the process, if you hurriedly bring in someone because of how rich they are or how impressive they are or how successful they are or he's your close buddy 
and you bring sin into the leadership of the church, then you bear a little responsibility for that happening. Verse 24 and 25, he resumes the idea. It says, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sin of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, but even those that, that, are, that are not cannot be hidden. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, another reason not to rush and make somebody an elder of your church until you get to know them is this. Well, for some people, their sins are real obvious up front. You don't even have to get to know them very long before you see what a horrid sinner they are. But for other people, their sins trail far behind. That means you've got to get to know them really well. You've got to spend a lot of time with them. You've got to get to know their family. You've got to see what it's like working with them in the, in the life of the church. And because of that reason, don't hurry the process. As I often say, it is, it is much better for someone to become an elder uh, six months or a year or two years after they could have than half a year before they should have. <laughs> you know, make sure that they're ready. Let people grow into ministry, not just go into ministry. Though it wasn't the office of elder, it was the office of, of Baptist. Uh, excuse me, the office of deacon. When I was a Baptist, I remember being in a church that, very big church with a ton of deacons in the church. I remember somebody saying to me one time, yeah, we're thinking about nominating such and such a person as deacon because he needs to be more involved in the church. And if he becomes a deacon, maybe he'll become more involved. I was 22 years old, and I knew that I knew the Scriptures better than this dude did. That's a terrible reason for anybody to become an officer of the church. You don't make somebody an officer so that you get them more involved. They have to show the depth of their spirituality. And so, what's the application for your church in the future? Keep the process appropriate. Keep the process appropriate. Make sure that there's the right vetting, the right way of nominating, the right training so that the leaders of your church are appropriately spiritual and they are appropriately honored. Now, I'll close this sermon by asking this question. Who is worthy for this, right? You look at all this that's going on and it makes you think of that verse out of the Old Testament. Who is this king of glory? You know, who, who, who could ever be this kind of leader? Well, it brings us back to the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God on which we, we ground everything. Every elder, every minister will need forgiveness. There are no perfect pastors. There are no perfect elders. And therefore, forgiving one another and forgiving your leaders from time to time, yeah, that's very important. They, they may not always love you like they should or be as prepared to preach as they should be and may, may make a few mistakes along the way. But there's to be grace. But even more so, it is the grace of God that develops elders. It is the grace of God that develops pastors. And so we go to the Gospel over and over again for this. In fact, I'll end the sermon by reading from 1 Timothy 1. Going back to chapter 1, that you've heard before. But in chapter 1, verse 12, this is what Paul says, speaking of himself. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that He and considered me faithful, appointing me to His service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, now notice, he doesn't say I used to be the worst. He says I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, my friends, when it comes to nominating elders, when it comes to any future pastors you would call, we're not looking for examples of moralism. We're not looking for examples of self-righteousness. We're looking for examples of the gospel. We're looking for those who would say, I am the chief of sinners. I have had God's grace abundantly poured out on me because I'm the kind of person who needs an abundance of grace. But then when you see that grace poured out upon them, what you see is this. This person looks like Jesus to me. This person reflects Christ's likeness to me. This person has a holiness and a godliness in their lives. But it hasn't come from themselves. It has come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's only through the gospel that leaders can be what God has called them to be. The line is so right. When you really understand the gospel, you can bring any sin in front of him. And you can confess your sins to one another because you know how deep the grace of God is. We're sinners following Jesus together. What's the bottom line of all this? Does he say in this passage that I just read? All honor goes to who? Yeah. Well, to some degree, we honor elders and pastors. <laughs> but the honorableness of their life goes to give ultimate honor to Jesus. The ultimate praise is his. The ultimate honor is his. To our only king, the only one who could equip leaders to be what they're to be. The only one who could take terrible sinners murders and violent men like Paul and turn them into leaders of the church. That's the kind of gospel grace that we need. And that's our only and our ultimate hope. And so as you go forward, though you will have leaders called and elected and ordained, your trust is ultimately never in any of them. Your trust is in our God of grace. And He is the one who's the foundation of the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank You that Christ Jesus is the foundation of our church, of this church. Lord, I thank You that uh, though this church has now experienced for a good while the leadership and the preaching and teaching of Ryan Johnson, and while this church is going to very soon elect and nominate and elect and have installed and ordained uh, ruling elders of this church, and Lord, only you know the future of this church in terms of others who will serve as assistant pastors, etc. But Lord, we thank you that our hope is not in any of these human beings, but it is only in the God-man, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the power of his life and death and resurrection. And our hope is in him. Lord, use this church powerfully to bless Lawrenceville and all of Gwinnett County and do so through its leaders and its members. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.